want to give us just maybe um, some things to think about moving into the holiday with this being kind of two days before, and that's kind of what everyone's talking about right now. I think um, one thing we, we, really two things I think will help us and form us as a result of this holiday. One, to acknowledge that um, in a lot of ways we have a, a wonderful country we live in, and to, to, to not just um, kind of have, have, be appreciative of the country for, in and of itself without thinking about God, but really being thankful and, and, and praise God to, to live in a country that, we, to, that gives us a lot of the freedoms and benefits that we have. And we think about our country and the greatness of it and those things, that we give credit to God because that is, that I believe that that is surely by the grace and mercy of God. Now, our country's not perfect. And I think this is where we have to be careful worshiping our country. We have a long ways to go. There's people out there that probably don't think we live in such a great country. Um, and so I think it's also humbling to kind of just step back and, and kind of ask ourselves the question, um, where has our country failed to honor God? What can we do as a country and as individuals to honor God um, moving forward? And so as a, as a part of thinking about our country and being thankful for the place we live in, I think that some sobriety and some humility to say, and how, what can I do in my life moving forward to make this country even greater? How can our country honor God to even a greater degree um, than we do now? And so I think that would allow us to kind of frame it in the, in the, with, with God being the center and seeing through a gospel lens, rather than sometimes I think we just kind of leave God aside and just focus on our country on this holiday, to, to really put God and think have God-centered, uh, God-centered um, lenses as we view our country on this holiday. So... Um, let me pray for us and pray for a lot of people that we have are traveling this weekend. So let me pray for our country and the travel and then uh, for the word. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you uh, once again for the country we live in. I thank you um, for all the benefits that your grace and mercy has given us through our country and through those who um, have, have fought for our country, have died for our country, the people who make our country um, great in the ways that it's great. We thank you. And that is surely by your grace and mercy. And we want to acknowledge you in that. But we also uh, want to ask ourselves, how can we honor you to a greater measure in our country? And that starts with, with us. And how can we um, honor God and, and, and honor Jesus and honor, honor the Holy Spirit in such a way that our country is changed for the good moving into the future? And we pray for everyone um, um, that is normally here, that is, that is traveling and seeing family and celebrating this holiday weekend. We pray for safety. And we pray that um, your presence will be near to them. And finally, we pray for the scripture this morning. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word. That we don't um, Sunday to Sunday have to search and figure out what you're saying to us. Or what you want us to say. That you've, you've given us that in your word. And we're so thankful that we have this book. That we can simply open it and dig in. And try to learn and understand and believe and allow your spirit to change us through the word. And we pray that that happens um, over the next uh, 45 minutes or so that we have left today. Uh, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Like I say, we're going to be in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read um, the last, say, four verses of this chapter. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord 
or who has been his counselor, or who has given him, or has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So I want to do something a little different that we haven't done in this book so far as we've walked through Romans. And we're in chapter 11, been in a long time. This is obviously the end of the chapter. And I want us to start here. Paul breaks out, just seems like, in kind of a random way, maybe when we first look at it. And it's just this, this chorus, chorus of worship and praise. And he's thinking about God and, and the goodness of God and all those things. But what causes him to do that? Like what what has Paul been thinking about? What has he been writing about that causes him to break out in worship and praise here? I think it's a good question to ask ourselves as we come into this place. The, why do we do what we do in this place every week? Why do we sing? Why do we worship through uh, meet and greet? Why do we worship by sitting under the word and listening to the word? Why do we worship through communion? Like, why do we do the things that we do in this place? Because I think it's the same question that we need to ask of Paul. Paul, what, what is causing you to break out in worship and praise here at the end of this chapter? So everything before these verses has kind of led Paul to this point. We could go back to, the, to chapter 1 of this book, and everything that comes before these verses is what's causing Paul to act the way he acts here. And if Romans was going to be divided in two, it would be divided at the end of chapter 11. If you had to break Romans up into two parts, it would be chapters 1 to 11 and chapters 12 through the end of the book. And so this is a really important turning point in the book of Romans. And Paul ends part 1 here by saying the things we just read. Now, chapter 11 is an interesting chapter. Okay, At first glance, I think it's the chapter in the book of Romans that really nobody thinks about, I think. And it seems maybe the least relative chapter in the book. Maybe... Maybe you think it's unimportant. Um, maybe, it, honestly, some, maybe for some of you it's kind of boring. If you're reading through the book of Romans, you come to chapter 11, your eyes may glaze over a little bit because you know some good stuff's in chapter 12, so you kind of maybe just want to get to chapter 12 and move quickly through Romans 11. And as I've studied and, and read, that happens to be a lot of the, the you kind of as the writers and theologians, they just kind of want to move through chapter 11 and get to chapter 12. At least with chapter 9 in Romans, that's the other really difficult chapter in Romans. At least there's enough controversy there. And Paul says some really crazy things that I think are draw us into that chapter a little bit, even though that's a hard chapter as well. But chapter 11 just seems like it's like the, kind of the, the chapter that gets left out in the book of Romans. And I think there's a few reasons why that's the case. And so I want to kind of touch on those before we move into this, because I think it'll help us stay engaged in this chapter that I think is sometimes hard to stay engaged with. One, chapter 11 refers uh, more to the Old Testament than any other book in the book of Romans. Okay? It is filled with Old Test Testament imagery and allusion and quoting, and all of those things happen in chapter 11. So I think it's sometimes hard for us to track along because of that. And second, I think it, it, we come into a church environment, like a lot of us expect kind of, especially in church, to, to come in and sit and kind of expect a teacher or a preacher to tell us what we need to know and believe and do. So it's just this expectation week after week, tell us those three things and we'll be good. And I don't think we often think in story and narrative enough that we can come into a place and, and hear a story or hear a narrative from the word and be able to pull out those things, pull out 
the things we need to know and the things we need to believe and the things we need to do. Like, that's possible in narrative. And this is what we're going to cover today is narrative. It's a lot of story. It's a lot of looking back to the Old Testament narratives and unpacking some of the things. This is ironic, this the way we view story, because we live our lives in a story, and, and the way we talk oftentimes is in story. For example, when you leave here and go to lunch, and you're conversing at lunch, you're probably going to be talking in story. You're going to be asking, hey, um, what did you do yesterday? You're probably going to get answered in a series of stories. Or you're going to get asked, um, hey, how, how was your weekend so far? Well, you may get a good or a bad that's probably going to be followed with a series of stories to kind of, uh, that, that you're going to hear why someone said it's, it's been good or bad. And when we meet someone new, you don't talk in the form of like a resume, like a verbal resume. You don't list eight bullet points about yourself and then the other person does the same thing. You, you, you ask questions. You, you, you tell people who you are through story. A lot of our entertainment comes through story formed. So we live in stories. Our story is a story, our life is a story in the midst of a bigger story, in God's story. This is where we find ourselves as we live. Our, our time here on earth has a beginning point and an ending point, just like every story or movie you watch. Okay? And usually, obviously, movies and, and, and books have authors. They have writers. And, those, and that's usually why there's a beginning point and an ending point, just like our life. I would think, I would argue from the Bible that, Again, we are living in God's story, and we find ourselves in God's story. And so our lives are primarily about God, not about us, which is one of the, thing, the, the I think, hard things when we come to a passage like this to realize that um, not all of life revolves around us. We're not the center of our lives. God it should be primary in our life. When we, ask, we tend to ask these questions like, what does the Bible passage mean to me? Or how did that song make me feel? Or what's best for our family? Those are good, important questions, but those shouldn't be the primary questions we're asking. Primary questions we're asking is, what is God telling us in the word? Or what is God, how is God communicating himself in this song? Or what does God want for our family? And those are the things we should be thinking about. And so this is why I think it's, it's sometimes hard for us. So I just want us to be aware of those things and keep in mind those things as we move into this chapter. I think it'll help us track along with Paul a little better. Uh, chapter 11, Paul, what he's doing here, he's condensing the history of redemption. So the way God deals with humanity and how God saves humanity, he's boiling really all of this down. He's condensing this down to really three or four Points And those points are like links in a chain. They all fit together. And we'll see that as this narrative unfolds in this chapter. I first want to go back to the, 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 the last verse of chapter 10 because I think it sets a lot of this up. So verse 21 of chapter 10, Paul says this. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul is saying here that the, the, the Israelites, they have... They have heard and they have understood, so why didn't they believe? Okay. And by the way, um, we have three characters in this story. We have God, we have the Israelites, and we have the Gentiles. And the Gentiles simply mean anyone who wasn't an Israelite. So those are the three characters in the story. So Paul here is asking the question, why didn't they believe? Why, did, why didn't the Israelites believe if, if they've heard and they've understood? He says, because they're stubborn. 
They're stubborn. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah here, and, and he's saying that, that God um, didn't show himself to the Gentiles, yet the Gentiles believed. And yet God showed himself to these people, the Israelites, and they, they didn't believe. They rebelled. They were stubborn. They were stiff-necked, the Bible says in other places. And he also says in this, this, this idea of, of someone holding out their hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Imagine a parent with a wayward child reaching out their hands to the wayward child and, and begging them to return back into relationship, begging them to come home to the rightful place, wanting them to come back into relationship. And this is the way God is viewing Israel, the Jews, his people that he called early, early on in the history of redemption, the story of redemption. This wasn't just a one-time offer that God offered to his people. For 2,000 years plus, over and over and over, God is reaching out to his people, showing them grace, showing them mercy, being patient with them, kind of wooing them back into relationship with him. And sometimes they just flat out disregard God and turn their backs on God and rebel against God. And at best, maybe they come back into relationship with God for a period of time, many, many years, and then they kind of get back, get their feet under him, things are going good again, and then they forget God and they go their own way again. Okay? This is the story of the Old Testament, okay? in a nutshell. God moves towards his people, shows them grace and mercy, maybe a little bit of a relationship. God's people say, nope, we don't need you. They rebel, they chase after other gods, they value other things. God may discipline them, kind of take his hedge of protection off of them temporarily, let them go their own way. Then Israel ends up realizing the error of their ways. They come back. They say they're sorry. We'll never do that again. You're our God. You're our king. And then the process repeats itself over and over and over again for thousands of years. This is how God and Israel's relationship goes. God's got patience. He's got grace towards his people. So let's look at this story, okay? Let's look at this story. Um, so I'm going to go through quick this chapter, and, and because I think really what Paul is trying to communicate is pretty simple. He says it several different ways, so we're going to jump around a little bit, but I'm going to move um, kind of in order through this passage. Now remember, three characters, God, um, the Jews, and Gentiles. Okay, so verse 1, first question. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? In an exclamation, he says, by no means. Okay, by no means. And so he has not abandoned Israel, Paul says. And Paul is using him as a primary example. He's like, I'm an ethnic Jew. I'm a Jew. And I have become a Christian. Like, I'm a walking, living example that God has not completely given up on the Jewish people. Okay, I'm an example of this. And then after the, and in that passage, he also uh, goes to the prophet Elijah, and, and, and there's, a, there's a narrative here where he's talking about where there's, there's 7,000 people kind of set aside as a remnant that God's going to save from his people. Okay, so there, God, Paul's given two reasons. One, his own life, and two, another narrative in the Old Testament just to show people, hey, God hasn't abandoned Israel. He hasn't abandoned his people. There will be a remnant at some point uh, of Israel that is saved. Let's look at verse 7. Skip down a little bit. Next question. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, this is important, God gave them, this is Israel, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, 
down to this very day. Verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Okay? This is what Paul is saying here. Because again, he's going back to the Old Testament. Saying that Israel failed in seeking, but the elect obtained it. Okay? And the rest were hardened. Talking about Israel. Okay? This is the elect here. This is the people, the remnant that Paul's been talking about all along. There's a remnant of Israel that will be saved. But, he, but they're kind of saying, well, why hasn't... Why haven't they believed yet? Why haven't all of them believed? And he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Interesting, it says God gave them. Okay? So God is the one acting here in Israel amongst those people. Okay? God has a plan. God has a plan here. He's got his plan, and the plan, hint, hint, is for the Gentiles to be brought into relationship with him. Okay? But it's part of his plan. So in verse 11, he asks another question. Okay, again, he's unfolding this slowly. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fail? So why did they stumble? What was the point of Israel stumbling? It's the question. It says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So through Israel's trespass, the, the, the way of salvation has been made available to, to all peoples. All peoples as a result of Israel's trespass. Why did he do this? So as to make Israel jealous. Okay, So God's making Israel jealous here. Verse 12. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So he's saying here that through the trespass, the Gentiles, it's, it's good for the Gentiles. Through their trespass. It's good for the Gentiles. And then at the very end of verse 12, he says, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So there'll be a day when a group of Israelites, we don't really know how big, but a group of Israelites will be saved. That remnant will be saved. So it's good for the Gentiles now when Paul's speaking, us sitting in this room, but there'll be even a better day when the rest of Israel comes in. And when the rest of Israel comes in, we don't know that day in the future, but when that happens, there'll be a fullness to God's church. There'll be a fullness to God's people where we'll all benefit as well. This is what Paul is saying here. Now, the three-step chain here that Paul is laying out, I want to just make sure we see it because he's laid it out here. Really three or four. Number one, God's people originally are Israel. It's Israel. That's the, the Jews. That's God's people. And number one, God hardens Israel and they turn away from God because of this. So salvation, God says, you're my people. Well, if you're not going to be my people, then I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I'm going to make salvation available to the Gentiles because you've rebelled and you've turned away. And if, if you see that there's a, if you know the book of Acts in the New Testament, there's a point in the book of Acts where up to that point, the Gentiles really weren't, there was no offer made of salvation to the Gentiles in, in a large way. There's a turning point in the book of Acts where God says, no, I want the gospel, I want the good news to go to every tribe, tongue, language, people group in the world. Not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. This is what Paul is referring to. God finally gives up hope for the time, the time being and says, I'm going after the Gentiles. Okay, So that's kind of the first step of the chain there. Secondly... Israel will begin to see the Gentiles come into salvation. There's going to be this holy envy in 
amongst the Jews, amongst the Israelites. They'll see that the Gentiles are, are receiving the blessings from having a relationship with God, and there will be this holy envy, and they'll want what the Gentiles have. Okay? And there will be Jews that begin to be restored back into right relationship with God. And it's already begun when Paul was writing, because he's one of them. It continues until this day, and it will continue on into the future uh, to a day where a large group of Israelites will return to God. Okay? And then verse th- I mean, the, the third link of the chain there, I just kind of got into it, but once the fullness of this restoration occurs, once the Israelites come back, um, the, 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 the whole world, all of the believing people in the world, all of God's people will benefit from this in some way. We don't really know what that looks like. It's just promised to us in scriptures when that big group of Israelites come in, whenever that is, we will benefit from that. The Gentiles will benefit from that. People who aren't of Jewish ethnicity will benefit that. Okay, So there's a benefit to us, obviously, and there's also a benefit to the Jewish people. Let's keep going. Verse 13. So that's the chain. You kind of have the, the, the context here, the structure. Let's keep going. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. So he kind of turns this really attention. Gentiles, listen to me, Paul says. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. So Paul knows God's plan here, making his fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For, in their, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Okay. Now, he's going to give a couple illustrations because I think Paul gets it. Okay, this is, this is dense stuff. This is heavy stuff. I want to make sure you really get it. Okay, so number one, he doesn't spend much time on this one. I don't know why. Verse 16 says, if the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Okay, so the, the, this first fruits of the dough, the beginning of the dough here, he's saying that's, that's the Israelites. Okay, and if that's worked through the whole lump, then the whole lump will be holy as well, which is the Gentiles kind of coming in and benefiting from the, 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 the first fruits of that dough. And again, he doesn't explain a lot of it, uh, but that's his first image. Now, the second one, he's really going to explain it, and, and he gives a whole um, picture here that we'll get into. Okay, So the second part of verse 16, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So then he moves into this, um, this kind of imagery of a tree. Okay, So I want you to think of a tree in your mind, kind of the basic parts of a tree. And each one of those trees kind of has a, a representation for Paul. Okay, The roots of that tree are the original patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those to whom God first appeared and kind of gave them the promise. They're the roots of the tree. Like any tree, there's a trunk that forms, maybe multiple trunks coming out of those roots. Okay, that's, that's the, the trunk is, is Israel. Okay, what, what God intended Israel to be is coming out of that trunk. It's, it's the people of God. And there were branches on this tree originally. And those branches represented Israel. Okay, this is before the Gentiles come in. But this, this, this imagery is going to say that the, the Gentile, the branches were broken off. Okay, the branches were broken off. The, the Jewish branches were broken off. And a, a process called grafting takes place. Okay? This is where a process of, um, and again, I, I shouldn't be the one explaining this because I can't get anything to grow. Um, but I'm going to try here. Okay? So grafting means it's, it's taking a branch from a different tree, from an alien source, and grafting it back in to the main source of another tree, meaning this trunk is Israel. So the Gentile branch is grafted back into the tree that began with, and so it's, it, now it's one living thing. It's one living tree. Now, 
obviously the branch that's grafted in, into this, this existing tree benefits from it, right? It's, it's, it's receiving nourishment from the root system and, and all those things from the trunk. But there's also, um, if you dig into this process, there's also examples of if a trunk is struggling, if a root system of a tree is struggling, they take a branch from a really healthy tree and graft it in, and that trunk will also benefit from it. The tree will recover. The tree will get healthier just because some branches have been grafted into it. So there's a mutual uh, edification here. There's a mutual benefit both for the Gentiles and Israel. And this is, this is why this, this picture here is really, it's kind of hard to understand, but it's really brilliant of what Paul's trying to get at here. Let me go ahead and read 17 through 24, and hopefully we can understand this a little bit more now. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, talking to the Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Okay, so he's telling Gentiles, do not be arrogant. Like you came, in, you came second here. Okay, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off the Jews, because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Not your works, not something good you did, did, but through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. So he's saying, Gentiles, you should kind of have a healthy fear because if God kind of removed the branches, and these were his people, and he removed those branches one, at one point in time, there should, be a, there should be a healthy fear of who God is based off of what God has done to his people in the past. Okay, so a healthy fear, not an, not an overcoming sense of fear. He's saying, hey, be humble. Realize this has all come through faith by grace. There should be a healthy element of fear here. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Again, kind of back that, that fear thing there a little bit. Verse 23, and if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again, speaking of the Jews. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Okay, again, so basically just using this imagery. He's not introducing any new ideas here. He's just trying to help us understand what he's talking about here in this really difficult concept. But this is the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. So it's really, really important that we kind of understand, I think, the timeline here, okay? So to the Gentiles, he's saying, be humble. Be humble. You were grafted in. You weren't God's original people. God had an original people. Now, he had you in your mind. He knew what he was going to do all along. But he started out with the Jews, and he moved to you later. You were grafted in. And it's only by faith and grace and his good mercy that you are connected to, this, to the people of God, to this tree. But he also knows there's some Jews listening. There's some Jews, Jews reading this. And he's continuing to, again, provoke the Jews to get them to come back, to get them to believe, to get them to stop their rebellion and believe in Jesus. Okay, So he's thinking of both of these people as he, as he talks through this picture. Okay, So let's, he's going to continue to explain this. Same idea, just uh, kind of different angles. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Okay, so it's a mystery here, okay? This is kind of hard to understand. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Okay, so God did this. God said, okay, Israel, wait. I'm going to bring these Gentiles in, and then I'm going to remove the hardening. 
Okay? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay? Now, verse 26, it says all of Israel will be saved. We don't have time to get into that. But if you, if you look at the context of this passage, nowhere does Paul say that all of Israel will be saved. He hasn't said that anywhere. The whole point of writing this passage is to show why some believe and some don't believe. Okay? So this all here will be, he's probably thinking in the context that all the Israel who, who, uh, who were elect, all the Israel who, um, that God had planned to be that remnant will be saved. Because if you look at the rest of the context, that's really the only thing it can mean. It's the whole reason why Paul is having this conversation. But I really want to focus on here in verse 26 is this, this, this quote he uses, the deliverer will come from Zion. This is a quote from Isaiah. And the original quote says, the deliverer will come to Zion. Okay? So looking ahead to Jesus, Isaiah said, the deliverer will G- or Jesus will come to Zion. But Paul here changes it. It's subtle. He changes it. And he says, the deliverer will come from Zion. And this should be just lights bla- glaring, blasting off, saying, this is Jesus. He's talking about Jesus here. He's preaching the good news. He's saying, it's already happened. Jesus has already come. The incarnation has already happened. He's already lived. He's already died. He's already risen. He's, he sits at the right hand of the Father right now interceding. Okay, So again, he's talking to the Gentiles, but he's also talking to the Jews, trying to convince them that the, that the Savior has already come. Okay, so again, this comes back to Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the way the Jews have to get back into right relationship with God. He is the way, the truth, in the life. And for those of us in here who maybe struggle with that, I think this is further proof that if, if God, these people whom he's loved for thousands and thousands of years and has been so patient with, so merciful towards, so gracious towards, if he's telling them, hey, the only way is through faith in Jesus, if he's telling them that, then he's telling everyone else that as well. That same principle applies to all human beings. The only way to eternal life and reconciliation with God is through Jesus, period, okay? And that's what Paul is trying to, to, to get at here, okay? So we need to think about that. Like, if, if, if God is willing to, to, to say, no, Jews, you need to believe in Jesus, okay? This is about Jesus now, then he's going to, to, to apply that same principle to every human being. Okay, so I think that's just a, something that we can pull out of there, okay? Now, let's kind of wrap up here. Verses 28 through 32, it's really a summary, okay? I'm going to go ahead and read it, but it's really a summary of all he's been talking about here, and then we'll get back to the, the, the passage we read before. Verse 28, as, rega- as regards the gospel, again, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, talking to the Gentiles, that you're, there's the, Gentile, the Gentiles, but as, re- as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they might also now receive mercy. 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Okay, so all kinds of people God has mercy on here. Okay, all kinds of people God can have mercy on. And all kinds of people, through faith, can be brought into the kingdom. 
There's no restrictions on the kind of person that can come into the kingdom. There's no restrictions on ethnicity or race or where you were born or your education level or how much money you make. There's no restrictions on who can come to Jesus. It's just by faith, by faith through grace, okay? Now, let's go back to, and here's the deal too. If you, if you, look, at, um, if you look at Acts, this is really important. If you, if you, in the New Testament, when you read the book of Acts, Paul's missionary strategy is based off this narrative. Okay, when he goes into a city, the first place he always goes to plant his church to preach the gospel is into the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue. He doesn't go to the Gentiles. He goes to where all the, the Jewish people are. He goes to the synagogue first, even though he's after the Gentiles. He knows Gentiles are going to believe, but he first goes to the, to, to the synagogue. And you really have three groups of people that you see in the synagogue in every city. You have the people that... That there's kind of this, this big middle of people who really don't really care about what Paul's saying. They're not intrigued by it. They just take it or leave it. You have a small group of people on one end who want to kill him. They hate what he's saying. They want to kill him. And those are the people that usually drive him out of town or get him thrown in prison or beat him. But then you have this other group of people who, who are kind of intrigued, but because of the social pressure, they're not going to say anything. But you'll see that they end up following him to where he goes next. So he'll preach the gospel, usually gets kicked out, makes a lot of people mad. And he goes to the, then he goes into the, 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 the places where all the Gentiles gather, preaches the gospel, and many, many, many come, become Christians. And even some of those uh, kind of God-fearing Jews also become Christians in that moment, too. They probably followed him over from the synagogue because they were intrigued in what he was saying. Again, the same pattern that God's shown in the history of redemption, Paul is taking on that same pattern in his kind of methods of, 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 of church planning. Okay? He's going to the Jews first, letting them do their thing. Then he goes to the Gentiles and hoping more Jews will come in as a result of him ministering to the Gentiles. Okay? So Paul is, has this in his mind as he does ministry. Okay, Verse 33 through 36. Let's read this again. I think there's some really practical things now we can take away from, from these passages in light of what we've heard okay, in God's plan of redemption. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Exclamation. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul says. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And those big words that we could spend whole sermons just dicing up, just those, these, these words of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, unsearchable and inscrutable his ways. It's just like Paul, Paul's done with words. He's like, I have no words anymore. I've been dwelling on the goodness of God. I've been dwelling on, on who God is. And, and I have no more words for this, but I'm just going to worship, okay? Um, 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord. This is kind of a, a echoes from Job. If you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Job, these are kind of things that also came up in that book. For who has known the mind of the Lord. Who has been his counselor? Like Who is equal with him? Who, 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 can, who can really compare to him? Verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You can't, God doesn't need anything. He's perfect. We can't give him anything to repay him for what he's done to us, for what he's done for us. Verse 36, the final verse here. For from him, so from him and through him and to him are all things. He's covering all the prepositions there just to make sure that it's everything, everything. To him be glory forever. One of the key verses for our belief in God's providence and God's sovereignty, this verse right here. This is everything. From him and through him and to him are all things. Not some things, not the things we want, or not the things that we don't like. All of it. All of it comes from God. Period. Okay. 
four things I think really quick that I'm going to run through that I think we could, we could um, kind of grab onto and learn from this. Um, notice that God is, I mean, Paul is not focused on himself. It's fairly straightforward, but in this whole teaching and thought process, Paul is focusing on this history of redemption. God's outlay, the laying out of his redemptive plan, and that's what Paul is dwelling on. He's thinking about God, not from himself, and he's responding with joy. So I think when, if we want to experience joy, if we want to experience kind of worship and being able to just kind of from, from the depths of who we are experience joy and peace and freedom, our minds have to be set on God. We can't be looking at ourselves so much that we miss who God is because he is the fountain of joy. He is the, 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 the source of freedom. He's the source of peace. We have to set our mind on God and not let the world revolve around us, which, again, I wake up in the morning and the world revolves around me. When I wake up first thing in the morning, it's about me, what I need to do, what I need to do in the day, who I need to do. I mean, it's just I, 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 me, me, me. And I think if we were, myself and, and maybe all of us, just thought more, what does it mean to set our minds on God? What does it mean? And how do we structure our lives where we can set our minds on God and not so much on ourselves? That's the first one. Um, second one, we, we notice that he's, he's, he's worshiping here by quoting scripture. And I think there's an important principle here kind of underneath that, like, when we're, when we're worshiping, and we're really like letting it go, and these feelings and emotions are pouring out of us. It should always be connected to the truth. It should always be connected to the truth. It shouldn't be like emotionalism for the sake of emotion. Okay, emotion, feelings are always connected to the revealed word of God or how God's revealed Himself. Okay, and this is true. He's quoting Scripture as he worships. That's why when we when we worship through song in here, we're really careful about the words we sing. We think through what we put up on the screen. Are they biblical? Are they honoring God? Okay, because we, that, that's what we worship to, is as God reveals himself, we worship. It's not just this, um, let's, let's get emotional for the sake of being emotional because there's a song being played. Okay, we worship through truth. Now, flip that. If, if we're kind of, we, we want to focus on the truth and we're all about the truth, the truth should produce worship. The truth should produce something deep, deep down inside of us. If we're spending consistent time in the word and hearing his word, and there's people around us speaking truth and speaking um, encouragement into our lives on a very consistent basis, basis, we should be changed deep, deep down. Okay, I don't think that means we're always singing when, when we open our, our, our Bible, but the worship, this deep, deep down love and affection and, and, and kind of movement towards God, I think happens if we're people of the truth. I don't think truth is ever just dead. That, that intellect. I think there's our hearts are connected to it. Our emotions are connected to it. And so I know for me, that's kind of my struggle. I, I, I need to ask myself, how, how am I being stirred by, by thinking of the truth and not letting it be just an academic exercise where I'm gaining knowledge? So what I'm saying, spirit, I mean, worship and truth are always connected. And I think that's really clear. And I think Paul gives us a great example of that as he breaks out into worship here by quoting scripture. And the last thing here, I think, I think um, there's some humility in Paul. We don't have to have it all figured out. Maybe you're leaving here with this, going through this chapter, like, I have no idea what anything he said today or understand that. You know, that, but, but Paul realizes that. This is a tough chapter to understand. And we don't understand all of the way God works. We know who he is. He's revealed himself. But the mechanics of how things get done, some of it's a mystery. And it's okay. Like Paul, Paul even says it's a mystery. Paul, Paul even says in a place, it's hard to understand. 
He's using these illustrations. He's, using, he's asking questions here in the scriptures. Paul gets how hard some of this is to understand. But yet he still worships. He still is this place where he just praises God and is able to worship God even when he doesn't have everything figured out. I think it's a good lesson for us to just realize that we don't have it all figured out, but verse 36 is true, that to him, from him, through him all, are all things. And if that's true, then I can worship. Then I can have freedom. Then I can have joy. And so as we, as we um, sing the, the last song here in a few minutes, I encourage you to remember that. Maybe you don't have it all figured out. Maybe you're struggling in some places. But it, you can still come to the Father and, and worship and pour out your soul and your heart to him. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even really hard passages and chapters like Romans chapter 11. I pray you give us wisdom through your spirit. We need help understanding passages like this, and I pray that we would spend time on our own working through these passages and thinking through them and dwelling on them and wrestling with them. And um, we all love Romans chapter 12 coming up. And so I, I pray that we don't quickly run to chapter 12 where we get um, kind of these, these nice command statements where it's very clear what God is asking of us through his word. But we, we, we kind of stop and really wrestle with the character and nature of who God is and how he works in the world. Pray that we would do that um, as we move forward into our week, Lord. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We're now going to move into a time of communion. We take communion here every week. Um, and we do that because the scripture tells us to do it often. And we think it's a really, uh, really beautiful, clear picture of the gospel that engages all of our senses and even the imagery of the bread being broken and the, the, the kind of this juice that comes from grapes, whether it's wine or juice, like it's, it's, it's crushed grapes. Like grapes have been crushed to produce this liquid that we consume during this communion. And that's, I think that's important to, to think about uh, this imagery as we, as we take it. And here's, here's something I really want us to think about and dwell on. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, who have faith, just think about God's faithfulness. Think about thousands of years that have gone back of God being faithful to his people. When you rebelled, he pursued you. When you were weak, he was strong. When your faith was so tiny and you had very, very little belief, his presence was there. When you were undeserving of his grace and his mercy, he called you. He showed up. He said, I forgive you. He loves you when you're unlovable, as we all are at times, we're unlovable. Yet he's patient with us and he still loves us. And it goes back thousands of years to creation. That's why it's important for us to dwell on the Old Testament and the history of God's people like we've done today. So I want you just to think about that in the time, the, the few minutes we give you before you come afford to take communion. Um, just dwell on that and think about that. Um, if, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus... Um, I, I would ask you just to, to, to take some time and take some space to, to ask yourself, like what, who's writing your story? Like, what story are you living in? And, and, and are, you, are you in a story where you receive unconditional love through faith? Unconditional um, power through the Holy Spirit? Um, 
a, a king, a benevolent king that you're following and not the tyrannical kings um, that we find in different places in our world? Like, like what story are you in? And is, is there anything about Jesus that's attractive to you? This idea that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to him but through Jesus. Faith and trust in what he has done for sinners. Okay, so think about that. And, 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 and if, if, if something is, if, if upon thinking about that, if, if you feel God moving kind of deep inside of you and maybe you don't have words for that, I encourage you to talk someone, talk to someone about that. If you feel like there's something that's happened in you that you maybe um, have faith now today, you could come forward and take communion for maybe the first time today. But if you just need some time and you're here and, and, and you need more time to work this out and think about it um, and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, we actually ask you just to stay where you are. This is a, a family thing we do for Christians only. But if that is you, we're glad you're here. I'd love to sit down and have a meal with you or a drink and talk and wrestle with some stuff with you. Um, this isn't easy stuff to understand sometimes. It's hard. It's hard to understand. And I, I just pray that you would seek out understanding and seek out people to help you process through this, okay? So take a few minutes, think about God's faithfulness, and think about even your, um, those of you who are followers of Jesus, how you came to know Jesus and how faithful he's been every step of the way for you. So take a few minutes, um, and you can come to the, one of the communion stations located in the room.